Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle NBs that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. I'm Lee. And I'm Gretchen. And in this episode, we are talking about ancient Egypt. Yay! Yay! Getting that good, good old mythology fun in here. I Finally. Know. I know. Um, I don't know about the, whether this is still a thing, but like when I was young, like everyone had an Egyptian phase where you were just oh, yeah. like obsessed. With I mean, I'm still a, I'm still Egypt. in that phase. Let's be real. Let's I mean, be real. No, I never left. I I have I have a couple of degrees in ancient Near Eastern like linguistics and history, so I mean, I may have like shifted a little bit around the Mediterranean Sea, but like <laughs> I still love everything about ancient Egypt. I wrote a paper it's, about it's ancient so Egyptian fun. viniculture for an archaeology class. I just You're wanted fuck- to talk about wine. You're <laughs> fucking nerd. You're I know just I'm a nerd, nerd over here. God. Yeah, no, I think every I think everybody had an ancient Egypt face. I mean, I mean, part of it is at least, you know, at least like in California, part of our curriculum was in elementary school was you did a whole section on Egypt. And yep. I even I was like going through my storage unit and like my box of like, here's your entire life and your entire childhood. <laughs> and I found like, a, like I had done like a coloring book from like, like the ancient Egypt thing with like a like a father and a son and the oh father taking his son down the river and like talking about different you know different vocations and it was a whole thing i don't know but uh, i just yeah no i mean I, I i i don't have it unpacked from my new place but i literally have a little um like a little uh obelisk? jar oh yeah no. not an obelisk but i have like a little little jar you know th- with the where they put the the organs oh, yeah in. The, the canoptic jars yeah yeah the canoptic jars that i have my my coin co- my foreign coin collection in like a fucking dweeb <laughs> so, awesome. it's great <laughs> i had totally forgotten it must be the curriculum thing because mm. I, you know, I lived in California until high school, but like I just vividly remember like being like freaking obsessed with Egypt. There oh, were those yeah. um those books that had the like clear sheets of paper in them, or like the clear pages in them that you could like flip over, and it would be like oh, inside yeah. of a mummy. Looks yes. like this, and you uh, flip over the oh, like God. the like sheet, the like clear thing, and it would show you what the inside of like a casket looked like. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's so good. Well, and I mean, oh, I think man. this just, it's because it's its one of those societies where there's just so much left for everybody to, like, physically observe. You know, it's its the power of, it's the power of physical artifacts, I think, makes right. the big difference. Right. You know, this is, this is why you get so much, like, mainstream attention on ancient Egypt, on ancient Greece, on ancient Rome, because you have these like physical artifacts that are left over. You know, it's it's harder to find some other things, and also you know it's uh, the whole fun you know <laughs> the whole fun byproduct of like oh and these are the artifacts that we decided to bring over to the United States and to Britain because colonialism. La, right, la, 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 la. right. We're not gonna yeah. go a single single podcast without talking about colonialism. Because <laughs> guess what? It fucking happened everywhere. Oh my gosh! Right. Ah. So. Yeah. To- uh, today's episode is going to be more of a concept-focused episode. We're back to one of those rather than doing kind of the, the bio-focused ones like we've done the last couple of times. So we're going to have a discussion of mythology 
Then we're going to move into more of a discussion on gender ambiguity and third gender. That's kind of what we're focusing on today is on um, the potential concept of third gender in Egyptian society. Um, mm-hmm. Then we'll talk about language for a little while, then talk about my favorite, my favorite gay Egyptian tomb. Yay! It's yeah, we brilliant. mentioned them like very briefly last episode uh, yes. when we were at TGIFM slash, but we had to we had to keep it all under wraps. Ha 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 ha! Gosh, <laughs> I didn't even no. try to do that at first. No. Um, yeah, but no, we had to keep it under wraps because we were gonna do a whole episode about it soon. Yes. Yep. But yeah. Then we'll end with some takeaways, and as always, our how gay were they? We unfortunately do not have a word of the week this week because. Honestly, we couldn't find one. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we could always when we when we get to it, we've got some fun language stuff. That oh we yeah, can, oh we yeah, can dive into. We've got some um, linguistic stuff. But yeah, so without further ado, we present three genders in ancient Egypt. It's more likely than you think. Yeah, yeah. Gretchen came up with that one. Gretchen's been on I a did. roll with with the naming. It's been pretty fun. I really I like enjoyed it. punny names, though. I can't take entire credit for. Stars of a bygone era. That was my partner. <laughs> yeah, so. the true, the true ally. Yeah. Oh yeah. The he's ally great. with the assist. <laughs> oh yeah. He he's a good person to go to if you want like puns or weird, you know, things. He helps me sometimes come up with um, titles for my articles. But anyway. Yes. So. So we're gonna start by talking about mythology and a little bit about sources and whether or not we can use mythology as sources and what that looks hmm. like. Yeah, mm. I know. I know we were going to have to get into this like when we started going into ancient Greece too. Yeah, so like interesting thing about history is that a lot of it is very intertwined with religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, while many of us have been taught to think of religions, whether monotheistic or polytheistic, uh, as having like a singular quote canon of text, the truth is that myths in the ancient world varied from city to city even within the same culture. Right. Um, so if you've ever heard of the deity Baal, pretty well known like storm god deity in Canaan, um, in Canaanite mythology. Well, like there are like as many Baals as there are like cities in Canaan mm-hmm. and probably even more. The understanding of mythology that a lot of ancient cultures have that like we're not used to thinking of this way was that like there may have been a deity named Baal that kind of that did exist, but that deity had like multiple earthly avatars and they didn't all have to have the exact same characteristics to all be representative of the same deity. They had a much more like flexible understanding of like a deity's like personhood and you could have like, you know, this is our Baal and he's slightly different from your Baal, but they're both Baal, so it's fine. Like, (laughs) or you could have things like multiple origin stories. Um, A lot of times, Myths evolved based on contact with another culture's myths. So elements from one culture could be included and harmonized with the, the you know, pre-existing culture's ideas. Myths could differ on sometimes on purpose to avoid being associated with another culture. Or you could have anything in between. So, I mean, when you're dealing with, like, mythological sources, you might have five different origin stories for the same deity, really. Mm-hmm. So there are like many different versions of a single deity's history, their worship, their place within the pantheon, whether or not they're the primary god or like a demigod. We don't have time to get into all of them for ancient Egypt. So for an episode like this, we're going to focus on the pieces of Egyptian mythology that point to a more complex understanding of gender 
while acknowledging that there are versions of these myths and maybe even certain deities that don't exhibit this ambiguity depending on where you look. So, I mean, we're specifically dealing with those myths that have this interesting understanding of like gender ambiguity in them, but that doesn't mean that this is like what Egyptian culture was as a monolith. Like this is just yeah. one, <laughs> like these are just like some versions of these stories, but even the fact that these versions exists says that there was a place it, for them within the culture at large. Exactly. I mean, they, yeah, it, it has implications in the way that people went about their lives and their belief systems and their, and their culture and the way that society is built upon. You know, it's, mm. it's, we don't really have, like nowadays, you know, we have certain ways that culture exists outside of religious beliefs. But when you're talking about, you know, the, the quote, ancient world, th things kind of, moved in a different sort of rotation around mythological beliefs and constructs of identity. Right. There's so, there's things no things to keep in mind. Yeah, there's no like right mythology. Like if you pick up a book on Egyptian mythology, it will probably have versions, maybe even the most common versions of these mythological tales, but that doesn't mean there aren't other versions that would have been accepted alongside the ones that you know we have in a specific compendium so that's all we're trying to get at is like there's no like right mythology we're just dealing with specific versions of these tales and ways of understanding these deities that have this kind of like interesting like ambiguity involved in the way that they deal with gender mm -hmm. so yeah so, so speaking of uh, yeah. let's, let's get a little bit into, like, gender ambiguity in Egyptian mythology. Right. Um, and in generally, you know, and in, in general, just talk about, like, mythology in general. Right. So, myths are culturally constructed stories used by societies to understand themselves in the world, right? That's, that's what we're dealing with. It's, hey, look at all this, everything around us, and this chaos. Let's come up with some sort of way to understand it and make sense of our world around us. They explain why society works the way it does and usually puts forth, you know, what roles uh, different members of society have. Many polytheistic cultures use the core of the pantheon for the roles of men and women in society, which is why in a lot of these societies you'll see so many kings and queens of the gods, you know, male and, for, uh, male and female fertility gods, for example. They show primary roles for men and women in that society, which human beings are meant to emulate. Right, right. Like Zeus and Hera, for example, will, you mm -hmm. know, dabble in Greek mythology a little bit here. Like Zeus is like the king of the gods. And he is like your quintessential like storm god, fertility god who, you know, there's a reason why like he has a lot of babies because he fucks everything. <laughs> I mean, one, because like Zeus is a douchebag. When, <laughs> when, when we get to Greek and Ro Greece and Rome, I will talk about Zeus being a douchebag. Um, but he is. But, like, he is this kind of, like, quintessential fertility god who, you know, that's the role for men in society is to, like, be in charge and, like, populate things. And Hera is more of the, like, the housewife goddess who's, you know, she's powerful, but she's also jealous. And she, you know, like, there are aspects of, like, she's, like, your quintessential, like, housewife, housewife goddess um, she's the goddess of fertility, but she's more like domesticated versus say you might have like a, a like a goddess like Ishtar, who is mm -hmm. also a fertility goddess, but is also like a goddess of war. And so typically like the like the main, I guess we can talk to them like the main king and queen of the gods can be seen of as like that society's like their how they understand the roles for like men and women in society. Mm -hmm. It's not always the case, but that's frequently like what their role is, is to be like, this is what 
you know, your wealthy citizen in the society's life ought to try and emulate the gods. Yeah. Anyway. Yay. But like what's interesting is that in Egyptian mythology, you have this like potential for gender complexity and ambiguity, especially in the creation cycle that traces back to Atum. And the this creation cycle is centered in the city of Heliopolis, which was the sun city. Um, so there are a couple of other different like creation cycles or like they're called cosmogonies. So kind of origin of the universe cycles of how did we get to where we are today? So the one we're going to talk about is the one that traces back to Atum. And, and Atum, Atum is the yeah. Atum is like the like the first god yes. in in this this mythology, right? And yeah. it's yeah. Atum had like male and female qualities. Right. As he opposed would... to like the male god and the female god came together and then created the pantheon. Right. Right. Like in in other creation cycles, you will often have like the the like the universe exists because there was originally a pair of deities, and one of them was mm-hmm. male, and one of them was female, and then they had kids, and one was male, and one was female, and then they had kids, and one was male, and one was female. It just goes goes on like that. Well, in this version of the cycle, the first deity is a singular deity rather than a pair. He's both like male and. F- Female, like technically, like ish, has you know is non-binary. I would I would call them non-binary. Like Atum is like a non-binary deity who's often symbolically pictured as male, but not, but also female at the same time. Like mm-hmm. symbolically, he might look male, but he is also female because he's the or- originator, like the origin of, of life. Yeah, right. So Atum like existed in the primordial waters, which were called Nu, and he birthed himself so in that sense you have this right away this unique perspective that gender in some sense all comes from a singular source that encompasses all facets of gender rather than gender being like innate like innately binary you have this sense of like there was a being at one point who was all gender at once as the origin of the universe which i think is really interesting and as in common in ancient near eastern mythologies atum Atum then produces a series of, you know, fertile binary pairs. Atum, like, evolved into this multiplicity of beings and elements <laughs> via an act of masturbation. Yay. I love mythology. This is great. I know. <laughs> well, I mean, so much, God, so much of mythology is just so, and, and like, so obsessed with, I mean, you'll, you'll see in a lot of things that we'll end up talking about in many different episodes, but, you know, we get in, we'll get into it here that, like, this this concept of the seed and semen ha- is so as as a person without a penis i get so frustrated because i'm like god everything does everything have to revolve around <laughs> i know but it, but it really does like it like in mythologies all around the world and like rituals based on you know like move, moving forward in the world moving into adulthood everything revolves around semen and it's totally weird Right. Um, yep. But there you go. So yeah. So so Atum, like the Atum's hand, apparently was um, which was used to release the seed, uh, represented the female element within Atum. So he literally, they literally fucked themselves um, yeah. with their hand, and um, or you know sneezes and spits them out if you want to go right. with that version yeah that's another version that he <laughs> just like s- sneezed and oh look i sneezed out some gods <laughs> i sneezed out some baby gods <laughs> i can't tell if that version is more fun or less fun right it's fine <laughs> it's fun it's more fun to like visualize 
Yeah, there I think you go. to be like, I don't know, just like phlegm landing on the ground and being like, oh, look, a baby. <laughs> oh, God. Uh. So Atum's offspring were the air god Shu and his sister wife, Tefnut, who is the goddess of dew and moisture. And then they got together and they had some babies um, and they gave birth to the earth god Geb and the sky goddess Nut. And uh, they had some babies. <laughs> this is this is so normal. In ancient Near Eastern cosmogonies to just be like, and then he married his wife and they had some babies and then he married his sister and had some babies. So Nut gives birth to four deities and these four deities represent the forces of life and these four deities become like the center of the Egyptian pantheon. Yeah, these are the ones that, you know, from your ancient Egypt phase, you will probably recognize. Yeah. So you have Osiris, the god of fertility and regeneration. You have Isis, who is his sister wife, the goddess of motherhood, and other things. This is just summary. Um, Set, the god of the desert, storms, violence, and disorder, who can have both positive and negative aspects. Some versions of Set make him this, like, evil, conniving usurper, and then in other versions, he's, like, the defender of the, like, he will rides in the chariot with the sun god and, like, fights the serpent of chaos rather than being a representation of chaos himself. So Set has this interesting, I mean, Set's, he gets even more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have Nephthys, who is the goddess of the death experience, as Isis is the goddess of the birth experience. She is known especially for her protective role over the dead and embalming, which ensured a whole, intact, and happy afterlife. Also beer. Yay. Woo. So anyway, I love Nephthys. She's great. <laughs> um, so um, speaking of Nephthys, a lot of Articles that you might read, if you go to Wikipedia or a couple of other places, they will pair Nephthys with Set as if they are consorts. But recent research has actually called this into question. And while there are some like sources like Plutarch from the 1st and 2nd century AD, or CE, I guess, sorry, <laughs> CE. <laughs> uh, my archaeological like training is like, it's CE, not AD. <laughs> so, Pl so Plutarch existed long after most of the ancient Egyptian sources on the deities. He links them together, and there is evidence of them being worshipped alongside each other. Usually in where Set is more of a positive, like anti- chaos deity then you will have him paired with Nephthys but there is little evidence that such a union was common in the ancient Egyptian sources and this may sound like it's not necessary but it is it is necessary that like Nephthys was a separate they weren't married they were not mm -hmm. a sister wife has you know they were not a sister brother like pair pairing the yeah. same way that Osiris and I Isis were but even I mean you we even see a lot of Nephthys Nep Nephthys I can never pronounce that name uh, Nephthys spending a lot of her time with Isis. Yes. And and yep. being associated with her, especially in funerary rites. She's usually her companion. And in most versions, you know, she doesn't have any children with Set or any children at all. There are a lot of things, you know, we'll go into about the way that these four deities kind of start to start to encapsulate and emulate like the ways that gender expression could happen. And you know, she's often referred to as like this virgin goddess or this virgin lesbian goddess. So, mm -hmm. right, because she hangs out with is this Isis my wife a lot. of the week. Right? Yes. Yeah, like, this my wife. My, my wife goddess, of the week. Like a goddess of embalming. There you your go. Wife of the week. Yeah. Sure. Oh yeah. Sure. That works. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Everything I read about her, like someday I want to write like a like a fantasy story. That like retells Nephthys's story. Yes. I think it'll be great, and it'll definitely be gay. So Set, huh. Set. We're gonna talk about Set. Set is fascinating. 
<laughs> so just as Nephthys spends most of her time with Isis, Set spends almost all of his time with Osiris and Osiris's son, Horus. But they're not like friends. Like it's not like Nephthys and Isis seem to have been friends and get along. And Nephthys, I think in some, in many versions, like she like helps Isis raise her children. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like the cool gay. She's 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 a cool she's gay like, beer mom. Uh, she's yeah. a cool gay beer aunt. Yeah, she's the she, yeah she's the cool gay beer aunt. Set, however, is not as much fun from they're, what we understand. They're they're fre- they're frenemies. Yeah, yeah. So Set and Horus vie for primacy among the gods, and Set kills Osiris by cutting him into pieces and then scattering the pieces all over Egypt. But Isis, with the aid of her sister Nephthys, gathers all the pieces back together and revives. Osiris just long enough for Isis to get pregnant. Um, and then Osiris becomes um, the god of the underworld. So he becomes the god of the dead. And then Isis bears a son, Horus. And Horus then becomes like the next like king of the gods. And so Set decides to turn his attention to Horus, attempting to discredit him because Set wants to be in charge. So he's just like trying to get rid of all of the like male leaders who are in charge. And he's attempting to discredit him for leadership by... Uh, having sex with him because because that's like the 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 first thing that someone thinks of yeah well i mean it goes in you know we'll we'll go into it but it has to do with what we talked about in ancient china and what we're going to talk about in ancient egypt or in ancient greece is you know it's the hey wait if i have sex with you and if it's me specifically having sex with you, you not having sex with me, that means that I am the active role and you are the passive role and that means that I am in charge and you are the one who is being submissive. Um so it's all it's all connected. Yep. Um yep. so yeah, so, so yeah, according to the longest version of the tale, um this is the one I mean, this is my favorite version. <laughs> Set says to Horace, "Come let us spend a pleasant hour at my house." Horace answered, with pleasure, with pleasure. When it was evening, a bed was spread for them and they lay down. During the night, Set made his penis stiff and he placed it between the loins of Horus. Horus put his hand between his loins and caught the sperm of Set. Then Horus went to his mother Isis and said, Help me! Come see what Set has done to me! And he opened his hand and let her see Set's semen. With a scream, she took her weapon and cut off his hand and threw it in the water and conjured up for him a hand to make up for it. Yeah, so the idea is like, you know, because he's like holding Set's seed in his hand it was supposed to be like a you know a a symbol of like oh well i guess he's in charge now i guess you know so so like isis is like wait no hold on this is wait hold on no we gotta we gotta bury the evidence get rid of it here you go cut it off yep start anew yeah and uh in an older but shorter version so around 2000 bce uh it says the divine person of set said to the divine person of horus how beautiful all your buttocks how vital! Stretch out your legs. Then Horus runs to tell Isis, who advises him to trick Set into having intercural sex and have and saving some of the semen. So uh, the difference there is in the in the the longer version, but like newer version. That's 1160 BCE. Horus agrees on his own. Like mm-hmm. Horus, like agree, like seems to consent to to sex with Set. And it's only afterwards that he's like, oh shit, mom, what do I do with this semen? Whereas in the older version, Horus goes to Isis beforehand and she's the one who tells him, (laughs) 
Like, she, he's like, hey, mom, set wants to have sex with me. She's like, all right, so here's what you do. You got to, like, trick him into having, like, intercural mm-hmm. sex, and then you can catch his semen in your hand. Um, so that's the different. Like, in one of them, like, Horace seems to be, like, totally cool with it. And in the other version, like, he goes to ask his mom, like, what do I do about this? But in both versions, Set does seem to actively desire Horace, like, and not just, like, he, he's like, dude, you have a hot ass. <laughs> In one of the versions, you know, like Set isn't just like ha 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 scheming. Like he def he definitely seems to be like desirous. He does desire Horace, and Horace consents. And in one of the versions, like like Set also like actually says that he Horace is sweet to his heart. So I mean, there may even potentially be a level of attraction there involved. But regardless of which version you start with, the tale ends the same way. So Isis takes Horace's seed after helping him masturbate, as one does. Ask your mom. Uh, thanks, mom. So, and she takes it and she sprinkles it on Set's favorite food, which is lettuce. So mm. when Set sits down to have a nice salad, <laughs> the dressing is Horace's semen. And so Set, thinking that his semen is inside Horace, even though the reality is the reverse, he goes before the judges to determine who gets to be the king of the gods. So Set tells the judges to call to his semen so that can respond by telling them where it is. And they do, and his semen responds from the reeds along the river, making it look like Set was masturbating by himself, alone, down by the river. Like and you do. That's, you know, as one does. Hey, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Where, where, wherever you want to get your jollies. I'm not going to judge. No. So then they call to Horace's semen, and it responds, much to Set's surprise, from within Set himself. In one version, it responds from his belly. And in another version, the seed actually, like, springs forth from his forehead in the form of a golden disc that Thoth, who is the moon god, then takes as, like, his special symbol. So when you look at the moon... <laughs> think of... Think, think of, of Empreg. Uh, yeah, think of... Think, think of <laughs> when, you, when you look at the moon, think of Empreg. <laughs> It's basically what it is. Yeah, no, like, that's exactly. Set the, has a forehead, moral, baby. The, the moral of Egyptian mythology: when you think of the moon, when you look at the moon, think of Empreg. Think of Empreg. Oh man, that's a new tag on Ao3. Yeah. God. So, like Horus, he's the prototypical Egyptian king. Like that's that's what he represents in this mythology is like the the first king of Egypt. Like he's got all the all of these you know gay undertones with set and it seems likely that like the shame at least from from what i was saying that the shame had less to do with the sex act itself or even being involved with another male but as you said earlier like being penetrated anally Mm -hmm. like the intercural part doesn't even seem to be a problem either and the gods don't actually seem to condemn the sex act itself but rather horus or set being made to take male seed into his body like Mm -hmm. That seems to be part of it is like having the the seed inside of you is somehow makes you the, you know, the passive partner um, unfit for leadership. I think it has a lot to do with the way they understood impregnation, but it's not even like sex or even like sex with another man so much as it is like having semen inside of you if you are a male. So according to Malik, one of our sources, Seth's behavior, which is trying to penetrate another man anally may be considered inappropriate and harmful in this context, and he may lose face, 
but he unquestionably displays exclusive homosexual tendencies, which means a homosexual is one of the most ancient central archetypes in Egyptian mythology. So one of these four, the four main deities that we had, who are like the core of the pantheon, is like, seems to almost exclusively have sexual relationships with other men. Mm-hmm. Yep. He also argues that Set was spoken of as having, um, so Malik again, was spoken of as having, quote, impotent testicles, but they're clearly intact. Like, they're functional, but they were called impotent. And he argues that, that homosexual men in ancient cultures were defined of as eunuchs, which is one thing we're going to talk about, which is interesting in this context, is that, like, Set could have been considered a eunuch, but not because he's doesn't have intact genitalia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a it was used a little differently. Right. Here. And that eunuch might mean more like non-sexually reproducing. Someone who doesn't actually, you know, reproduce and have children. It's also interesting Malik uh noticed noted that uh Set's favorite food is lettuce and lettuce doesn't reproduce sexually huh. in the plant world. Lettuce is a is a non-sexually reproducing plant. So it is interesting that Set's favorite ru- food is specifically lettuce. <laughs> like, oh, it's it's funny. It's almost as if, you know, all the different pieces of mythology line up to make sense with all the other pieces of mythology. Wow. What? Wow. Wow. Right? <laughs> right? So yeah, so with all of that, you know, we get this 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 foursome set of this this Egyptian pantheon of gods, these this Osiris, who is the reproductive quote unquote male figure, and Isis, we have our reproductive female figure, and then we have Set, who is our non-reproductive quote unquote male, or, you know, if we want to call him a eunuch, as, you know, was kind of translated for this, or even just kind of exclusively, you know, men loving men having sex with other men tendencies, and then Nephthys, who is the, the non-productive r- female, quote-unquote. Um, or, you know, maybe maybe she has some, some lady-loving tendencies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's often referred to, like we said before, as, like, the virgin. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot like, um, gosh, who's, like, Artemis. A lot like Artemis. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Who? Le- Don't who even get me started some, on how uh... gay Artemis is. Oh, right? God. Right? Oh, oh I boy. Gotta yeah, love I mean, the, like, like, we'll... the, like, virgin goddesses, and I'm like, oh, I mean, Right. Usually, like, we're just going to say, you know, like, so so much in history, when you see somebody being referred to as a virgin, a lot of times it usually has to do with, well, there's no evidence of them being with someone of the quote-unquote opposite sex, so they must have been a virgin. Right. Like, or, also, there's a whole host of other possibilities there. Right. Right. But yeah, but what does what does all of this have specifically to do with gender? You know, we titled this episode as like, you know, three genders in Egypt. And so far, it seems like all we've kind of talked about is homosexual tendencies. And so there are probably some of you wondering, like, wait a minute, hold on. I thought this was going to be a gender episode. Well, <laughs> uh, surprise, uh, things are complex and intertwined, uh, especially in ancient Egypt. So in Egypt... Gender, you know, quote-unquote gender, had primarily to do with one's role in sexual reproduction, as we've, you know, seen in a couple of different ways. As that was considered one of, if not the most important, sociological roles for human beings. Reproductive sex was the regenerative force of the universe, as we see in the sequence of dual reproductively fertile pairs of deities. We've got our, you know, Osiris and, and Isis. Osiris represents what we would call a sociological male, 
aka someone who reproduces in or via another person's body, and Isis, likewise, is the sociologically female, aka somebody who reproduces in or via their own body, or, you know, if we want to go with it, like, impregnator and impregnated. That was the terminology I came up with. I mean, I didn't see this anywhere in any of the sources we found, but that was what I think intrigued me the mm-hmm. most, is because it has less to do with anatomy and biology and more to do with role. And so mm-hmm. what is the role? The two roles are the impregnator, um, someone who impregnates someone else, and then you have the someone who is impregnated. And those are the two like roles. And like they may have a relationship to anatomy, but I don't think ancient like Egyptian culture didn't think in terms of anatomy and biology the way we do. And so I think calling, even talking about like male and female, I think in this context can be confusing because Mm -hmm. like we assume, or like many people in our society assume that like male and female is anatomical. And, but I think in Egyptian society, it had less to do with anatomy per se, as much as it do had to do with like that role of like, you are the one who gives the life-giving seed to another, or you are the one who receives the life-giving seed inside of you. And so that was why, like, when I was doing the research, why I chose, like, impregnator and impregnated. Because I think it goes beyond just, like, anatomical function. And what is interesting is both Set and Nephthys thus exist outside of these, like, reproductively centered norms of gender. In some versions, Nephthys never has any children. In others, she actually gets impregnated by Osiris. But not in every version. In some versions, she doesn't. She's not impregnated at all. And Set, again, never reproduces. And in both versions of the myth, he is the one who receives Horus's seed. So he's technically, he's trying to be an impregnator, but he ends up being impregnated mm-hmm. <laughs> himself. Especially in the version where he, like, gives birth to the moon disc through his head. Like, (laughs) I mean, he's impregnated by Horus because he is the one who receives Horus's seed inside of him, even in a non-traditional way, by eating a salad. (laughs) Okay, but that makes me think of, like, in front of my salad. (laughs) In really, in front of my salad. salad. Except it's on top of my salad. Salads are gay culture. Yes, they are. So, that's what, that's kind of what I'm getting at that this that this isn't entirely about biology or anatomy so much as reproductive role which for the most part would probably fall along anatomical lines but the Egyptian mythos and mindset create space for situations beyond what we would call you know biologically possible um because it's mythology you can kind of do whatever you want but to me like that to us like that shows that they're not strictly thinking in terms of anatomy like they're not specifically thinking of like someone who has a penis is the only person who can be an impregnator or like someone who ha- only someone who has a vagina can be impregnated like clearly not because mm-hmm. yeah. set was so it has less to do with like one's anatomy and more to do with your role in reproduction and but it's blurry i think is what we're trying to say is like it's blurry here mm-hmm. there's some ambiguity involved and granted like patriarchal norms would make it more difficult for those who are perceived of as being typically being the impregnated, you know, so what we would call, you know, females, to take on the role of impregnator. But one, I think, could at least in this system conceivably <laughs> have space for that. Under the right storytelling circumstances, I think you could have a situation where, you know, someone who might traditionally fall under the role of impregnated becomes the impregnator. Like, because it's mythology. And, you know, to say that, like, just because what more of what people that we would like more, you know, males, 
typically. More people with a penis might be able to be impregnated in this, you know, mythological worldview than the other way around. But that doesn't mean that there's there wouldn't be the right space for it. Um, so, again, we're back to the question. What does this have to do with gender? And so we're talking about Set being impregnated with Horace's seed. Such an act would, in some sense, make Set female. He is being impregnated. Or, perhaps... This is what could be referred to as the third gender. This idea of like someone who exists outside of the traditional like male, female reproductive roles. Someone like Set could potentially fall into a completely different gender category altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of, one of our source, sources, uh, Faris Malik, you know, this, this historian considers that third gender and, homose- and kind of homosexual behavior sort of go together. Right. The, the behavior, the role that somebody would place uh, place themselves in having exclusive homosexual interactions would actually put that someone outside of the norm for reproduction and would make them kind of a third category altogether. And there right. are even, um, there are even in, in other societies where you see this third gender pop up, there's some congruity there as well, where you have the, an interesting kind of smooshing together of gender and and sexual roles right so malik uh, Malik, is it malik or malik i'm not sure Uh, i don't know for sure either (laughs) but they focus on kind of quote-unquote male homosexuality being more likely to be a eunuch because quote females could still be impregnated much like nephthys and thus still fulfill a female role however we assume uh, we must point out that he won assumes that a third-gendered person with a penis would never have sex with a female and thus never fill a male role. And two, conversely, that a third-gendered person with a vagina would have sex with a male and would thus would fulfill a female role. So this may be true in a more patriarchal context where people with penises could opt out of exclusive homosexual interactions in a way that people with vaginas couldn't, but it's kind of unclear if this level of patriarchal assumption says more about, you know, who is doing the research than what it does about Egypt itself, you know, always take right. it with a grain of salt. Right, right. So in like, so in Malik's like conceptualization, you have like male who you have like the reproductive males, you have reproductive females, and then you have third gender, like this third gender of like what he called and, and other people have referred to as a eunuch, which is, you know, just the, he's assuming that this means non-reproductive male and assuming that that also probably means exclusive homosexual tendencies among this these non-reproductive males. But I, you know, who know? Like, why why exclude the women from this category? Like, why exclude non-reproductive females from the category of third gender? Unless you are assuming that, like, only you know, it's just one of those where, like, yeah, I'm not sure how much this says about Egypt itself, or whether or not it is the historian who is assuming, like oh, well, you know, what we would call females, like, people with vaginas are always going to be eventually going to have Mm -hmm. sex and have a baby. So, you know, because patriarchy, which may or may not be true. So, like, it may be true that, like, in ancient Egyptian societies, like, someone who is third gender would be more likely to be someone who has a penis because they have more power. And so they can, like, opt out of, you know, having babies and fulfilling, like, a sociological male role in a way that, like, someone with a vagina could not because they were more like property. But I don't know. Like, it could also just be that the historians themselves are assuming more power for people with penises, which... Historians assuming things based on their own... (laughs) 
at the time modern experience and ideologies. What? I don't know what you're talking about. What is this revisionist history? Right? What, what is what is this revisionist history you speak of? Um right. and we're gonna we're gonna get a little bit into into some further folks uh, a little bit later with this episode where we'll talk about all the fun assumptions uh, that oh come with being a a uh, modern white Straight. cisgender historian yep. looking yep. at ancient texts yep. and artifacts it's fun right yeah so to us but, the intriguing the intriguing takeaway right now was that like this idea of potentially like third gender being leaked to like opting out of you know traditional reproductive roles mm-hmm. um and what that could or could not say about you know homosexual tendencies in society but, but this uh, isn't our only evidence yeah, no, moving moving a little away from the mythological constructs, because, you know, we, we can say all we want about, you know, mythology influencing things, but, you know, where where does it come out in in tangible history rather than, you know, just belief systems? Um, so we have other evidence of non-cis-heteronormative gender understandings in Egypt. It wasn't just about one's role in impregnation. There are times when fertility approaches are more of like a fluid dynamic, like with a tomb, uh, which can lead to, you know, other non-heteronormative symbolism and ways of depicting deities and human beings. So there's, well, well, we'll talk a little bit about mythology to continue, but then we also have some other fun stuff. Do you want to start talking about uh, Hopi? Yeah, Hopi. So Hopi is the god of inundation. Um, the inundation was the annual Nile flooding. So Hopi is depicted with very large pendulous breasts and a large belly which were in in Egyptian art those are traditionally feminine symbols it's typically how you would depict like a someone who is sociologically female but they are also depicted as wearing a loincloth and a false beard which are sociologically masculine features Hapi has sometimes been called intersex um, though in light of Atum it could be that Hapi is someone of both genders simultaneously in the same way that Atum was, which to suggest both male and female fertility, which like Atum, who is the, you know, the god who started all of this, was in some sense both male and female. So it could be that like Hapi is intentionally being depicted as both male and female at the same time. I mean, intersex could be one way of describing that, but that is also not intersex. From what I understand is more of an anatomical mm-hmm. or biological like identity rather than a sociological one though it does have sociological implications so um the reason why like i am not comfortable using intersex is because i'm not sure that egyptians would have understood that terminology the way that we do so i think that it's much easier to talk about um or much simpler to talk about happy being someone who is both sociologically like male and female like they are Mm -hmm. depicted as someone who is both male and female at the same time Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. So th- there's this idea of like gender isn't even strictly like binary. Like one person could be both. Like Atum was and Hapi is. Like they are they are deities who are both male and female at the same time. Um, but there are also some really interesting features of Egyptian society. Would you like to talk about the dancing woman coffin? I would. I would like to talk about the <laughs> dancing woman coffin. So you get uh, so in the a lot of if you want to get into the background of where a lot of interest in ancient Egypt comes from. So like you get in the 1800s, there was a huge surge of European historians and archaeologists going over and finding and uncovering all of these tombs. Uh, You have a huge history of, you know, also a lot of grave robbing because, you know, Europeans are great. But so (laughs) we're we're sitting here in uh, 1835 uh, a mummy arrived in a woman's coffin, known based on, you know, the they could tell it was 
probably going to be women's side because of the iconography and the color palette used um, on the coffin or anything like that. And this mummy arrives wearing a pink skirt with visible breasts and wide hips in the embalmed state and a beard painted on the funerary wrappings as a part of the mummy's face. And the researchers were befuddled by the beard, like you do if you're, you know, like some Why white would dude someone with in the 18th, yeah, beard? some like white Victorian dude going, wait a minute, um, hold on here. Uh, so they, uh, an eventual, uh, like years and years and years later in 2014, a CT scan was done, um, and researchers claimed the body was now male based on what they saw. So the, the breasts and the wide hips were from padding, now claimed to be a desire to depict a chubby male. But, you know, let's not forget, right? Female coffin, female presentation, everything in the iconography, the color palette, like the Egyptians weren't stupid. They didn't make mistakes like this. No, nope. the body like these are the people that preserved a body for an afterlife and put very very specific things in there with them preserved their organs in very specific ways using very specific iconography a body preserved for the afterlife was meant to be their body forever and so every little detail mattered they're not but- gonna mess up a coffin they're gonna nope. they didn't make mistakes like that as it could, it could ruin somebody's afterlife forever. If you had the wrong thing, if you were missing something that you, be- that that was beloved to you in your life, you weren't going to have it in the afterlife. Yep. Yeah, you but know? like that was what the researchers were like. Oops, they put a male body in a female coffin. Da, da, da. Those like, dumb Egyptians. No. And you're like, what? No. Yeah. So <laughs> they don't. They don't fuck up burials, guys. Yeah. (laughs) So, like, obviously, like, the conclusion that we have to come to is this is either someone who, you know, was like a third gender dancer or a, or, you know, a transgender person, meaning that there's some ability to understand gender in terms of presentation rather than just as one's role in in reproduction. Here we have somebody who was presented in symbolic feminine ways in Egyptian cultural norms, even though they were never impregnated or reproduced. Right, right. Like, and the whole, like, well, they're just chubby. I'm like, no, like, no, that, do- <laughs> that doesn't explain that, like, the skirt and the coffin and, like, the wrappings were very clearly, like, decorative in terms of, like, dancing. Like, it had these, like, images of, like, straps, like, painted on to, like, represent, like, a dancing costume. Like, and yet, no, they were like, well, it's, it's male, just in the wrong coffin. And you're like, no. Or not. Or it's not. Stop being so, like, take off your, like, cis-heteronormative lenses for a second. Um, So, yeah, I mean, clearly this is someone who was depicted, their their gender was about their presentation. Um, Mm -hmm. And Egyptian society would have understood them as such. The fact that they got a burial and a coffin um, at this level means that they were wealthy enough in that society and this would have been accepted enough in that society to like give this let this be that person's afterlife (laughs) like Mm -hmm. and then you have which is related to this really this is really interesting um it's a current exhibit at the brooklyn museum called a woman's afterlife gender transformation in ancient egypt and now i really really want to go to brooklyn and go to this because it looks really interesting yeah yeah those of you those of you listening in who are in new york i know there's several of you go go to this exhibit and then like I don't know, tag us on Twitter or Tumblr and let us right, see some of right. it. Right, Yeah. So it's exploring this new topic and research on ancient Egyptian burial practices, which is the, like, the male symbolism being present in female burials. So one, the theory is that Egyptians believed that 
females, those meaning those who reproduced inside of themselves, um, the impregnated, were mere vessels for like a fully formed fetus that was transferred into them by the impregnator. So like they didn't have a concept of like sperm and egg, which is fair because they, yeah. they didn't have microscopes. Microscopes, right? They didn't know what sperm and egg were. So this would make rebirth into the afterlife impossible for someone who was female. So to overcome this perceived problem, um, the theory goes that females were transformed into a male during the burial process just long enough to create a fetus, and then they were transformed back into being, back into a female body. And so this theory relies on the depiction of, you know, female coffins with red paint for skin which was a color reserved for male. So when you talked about the the um, when you talked about the dancing woman coffin, mm-hmm. like the reason that we know it's a female coffin is because the skin color is yellow. Yeah. Um. So yellow was used for females. Red was used for males. So you have these like you know burials, these coffins for someone who is you know for the most part symbolically represented as female, other than their skin color, which is red. And then you have the inclusion of spells on their coffins that include pronouns that have masculine grammatical gender, which um, would presumably been have recited by the priest referring to, you know, the woman who is in the coffin, but using like masculine gender to refer to the, the person buried in the coffin. So this is an interesting idea that like they had to be trans, that they had to, you know, gen- undergo gender transformation for like the short period of time in order for them to have like a, a full afterlife. Like, yeah, it's kind of patriarchal. Woo! Woo! So, but it does carry with this this idea that presentation could not just theoretically, but literally and magically change your gender, even if just for a moment in time. I mean, like I said, it is rooted in some very, like, phallocentric conceptualizations (laughs) of reproduction, Um, which is unsurprising because that's very common. Um, But still, like, it shows that Egypt had a more fluid understanding of gender than the assumption of, like, reproductive role equals your anatomy would have us believe and like outwardly presenting as male for a moment in the afterlife gave them reproductive gave them the reproductive powers as someone who is an impregnator and they didn't have to change their anatomy just like their perception Mm -hmm. for like a moment you know yeah turn you turn you into a male for a little while okay no no, no. (laughs) well and and going with that we even have you know there's we have women pharaohs which is really cool we had older women pharaohs who were frequently presented as male in symbolic art they had a fake beard uh they were depicted as having a loincloth instead of a full dress they had the royal cobra on the brow and striped royal headdresses everything you know that was kind of this male symbology they were given male titles though you know sometimes amended to female ones right so like daughter of Ra instead of you know son of Ra. you have Oh God! Here we go. Here's my pronunciation. <laughs> Kent Kawes. Uh, Kent Kawes. The first Kawes. and second. Uh, the wife of uh, King Jedkare. Jedkare Subkenefru. Yes. Oh, oh sorry. I actually misspelled that. Oh, well then <laughs> it's it's Sobekneferu. Sobekneferu. There we go. Sobekneferu. Uh, whose depictions blend male and female symbolic attributes, which made it possible for uh, my favorite and the one that you know most people uh, will know about when you talk about female pharaohs, um, Hatshepsut, to do the same. So she was uh, she demanded she demanded that official iconography depict her with the traditional male uh, pharaonic regalia. The 
unfortunately must much of this was destroyed after her death leaving us with like the more female version of her boo but there's still some really really cool depictions that you can you can see um but she has all of that iconography we'll put we'll put some pictures in our show notes yeah i found several that are really good yeah um even you know even talking about things like nefertiti may have you know she may have succeeded her husband oh god akhenaten akhenaten and and more but there's there you go uh, but there's there's so many there's so much evidence of like women pharaohs and the way that they ruled and the way that they required themselves to be depicted in this this religious iconography is through these these very masculine symbols. Mm-hmm. I take it back. Hotchput is my wife of the week. Oh yeah, I did a report on her. She's so back cool. in the day because yeah, she was awesome. Because we were it was during the ancient Egyptian like school phase and all of the girls wanted to do like Nefertiti and Cleopatra because those were the ones they knew about and I was like mm-hmm. I'm doing Hatshepsut because she sounds freaking awesome and she is she's badass yeah she's super cool so again like some of this is likely rooted in in you know phallocentric and patriarchal assumptions but at the same time like Egyptian culture viewed the pharaoh as the earthly avatar for the sun god Ra which is where the title son of Ra comes from and a lot of ancient Near Eastern cultures like the the king of the land was like an earthly embodiment of the king in heaven. And so the same was true in ancient Egypt. So presenting a woman ruler in masculine ways conformed her to the expected outward presentation of male in Egyptian society. While not technically third gender, this does point to a more fluid conceptualization of gender um, that takes outward presentation into account. Someone who might otherwise be perceived of as female due to being a mother um, and thus being impregnated could be depicted as symbolically male in order to conform to cultural norms. So, like, it may not have... You have these female pharaohs who, in some sense, get to be kind of both male and female at the same time. And it's, like, really fascinating because, like, instead of saying, like oh, it's fine, like, Ra can be embodied in a, in a woman. They're like, well, no, she's got to be masculine. Mm-hmm. Like, she's got to be male, but she's still female, so she's kind of both. Yeah, you got to love me that in-between space. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, it hits right. me right in the feels. Well, right, um, because heavily implied in this is the idea of gender as social role. Rather mm-hmm. than just anatomy or biology, like you have, and like, also perception. You know, it's like right? what what you're presenting yourself as, what society is is seeing, and in the way that you behave, in the way that you are conducting various social roles. I can't, I can't word today. It's great. That's okay. It's <laughs> fine. So it could be that some of these, you know, women pharaohs were more than you know, quote unquote, cross dressers, which is what you know archaeologists will call them because, yay. Uh, woo. Expand your horizons, bub. Right. So it could be that some of them actually preferred male presentation, not just in symbolic art, but in everyday life. And, you know, it may be that some of them, if they had access to our modern terminology and mindset, might have even identified as male. We don't know, though. I'm just putting that out there as an option. Um, Because we don't know. All we know is from art. Like, we don't know what their psychology was. So I think it's fair to say it's possible that it could be that some of them actually preferred male presentation rather than female presentation we don't we don't necessarily have you know the psychology of these folks but one thing that we do have is linguistic evidence which i think is i think is like the coolest part of this you know we've got we've got our our presentation about you know we we have all of our folks in their in their burial and and depiction like that but we do have 
very specific, you know, like kind of moving into a, a new section, we have very, very specific evidence of actual space in language being made mm-hmm. for this space outside of male and female. Right. Which this is, is... Yeah. This is the real, like, we got some real, like, meat. Yeah. There's some meat on these bones. So do you... Do you yeah, I'm gonna I'm off? gonna get on. A, okay, I'm gonna get on a soapbox here. Yeah, the linguistics, the the linguist <clears throat> soapbox. <clears throat> Let me adjust my soapbox. Okay, so <laughs> like many Semitic and Romance languages, Egyptian only has two grammatical forms for gender: what we would call male and female. As a linguist, I prefer the labels unmarked and marked versus gender because I mean there are a lot of reasons why, but primarily because the use of gender leads to the mistaken impression that only having two grammatical forms for nouns and verbs that share a binary marked unmarked gender system means that a culture also ascribes to gender binary. This is a false assumption. (laughs) Just because a language only has what we would call, you know, male and female gender, like grammatical gender, does not necessarily mean that they believed in a gender binary. Like, that is not a one-to-one correlation because, mm-hmm. like, grammatical gender is not the same thing as biological gender. Like, and I will repeat that until the day I die <laughs> because <laughs> it's not the same thing. So, some, for example, some languages have both three grammatical genders and three sociological genders, like Sanskrit. Some languages may have a gender binary that is both sociological and grammatical, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they always do. Like, you know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. For example, Greek has three genders for nouns. Um, You have an unmarked, what is called the masculine. You have two different marked cases, which are referred to as feminine and neuter. But there actually isn't a lot of evidence for a the idea of them having a third sociological gender for human beings that I am aware of. Yeah, it's like, the same. This is the same grammatically in German as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so you can have you know three grammatical genders, but still have you know as a culture have more of a binary conceptualization of sociological gender. On the other hand, Egypt seems to be a good example of a language with two grammatical genders, but more than two sociological genders. We know for a fact from transcriptions that there was a third sociological gender that Egyptian that existed in Egypt Egyptian culture. Would you like to tell us about this I word would. for gender? I would. Okay, so so we get these um, from pottery sherds from Middle e- Middle Kingdom Egypt, right? Which is oh god, I'm trying to remember the time period in Middle Kingdom Egypt. Whatever, we forgot it off our outline. We're we're smart individuals. It's we got this. But Gretchen is like doing her quick Google face. <laughs> uh, but so we get uh, on these pottery Middle, shirts. So Middle Kingdom is roughly twenty fifty to seventeen ten BCE. Thank you very much. Um, Google foo come coming to the rescue. Uh, but yeah, so these uh, pottery shirts list three genders to circumscribe all of humanity. Okay, so you get. The Thai male, hmmed, female, and Seket, which Chet. or Chet. yeah, Seket. See, I should know this. I am a Jew. I know the guttural ch. Um Sechet, yeah. <laughs> So this, this is this is the big word, right? So this is this Seket. Uh, this word is usually translated as eunuch, but like we were talking about before, there's there's little evidence that individuals ascribed to this gender were like castrated people with 
with that, you know, anatomy. Um, it says less about actual Egyptian culture than the modern Western tendency to judge, like, non-binary presentation as somehow forced, right? Like, many eunuchs in ancient cultures were slaves. Or a kind of mutilation, or, you know, existing due to fr sexual frustration or jealousy. Many eunuchs in ancient cultures served in, like, imperial harems, and many times castration would have occurred to prevent them from, like, seducing enough seducing the ruler's women but needless to say while some of these assumptions do apply to the roles that eunuchs quote-unquote eunuchs may have played in ancient egypt and other ancient cultures none of them have any inherent connection to this third gender sechet except in the modern western or you know prejudiced mind castration of like actual people and not in you know mythological stories is actually pretty rare in Egyptian culture from what we understand. So the likelihood of Sechet, Sechet referring to like a castrated male are pretty slim. Right. But the, the word also appears in like a pyramid text where it is contrasted with Tai, which was like the male. So it's clearly, it's not just like an alternate word for males. It's like a separate thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of these, I couldn't find more about the Middle Kingdom texts. I really wanted to find out more about the pottery shirts to see what the context was. Yeah. Because my initial assumption was that it might be some form of um, execration text or like a curse text. And in situations where you have things like curses, it's very, very common to to you to like be as all-encompassing as possible. And so like you would say like cursed be all of the enemies of Egypt, the males, the, the females, and the sechets. I don't know that that's the context. But like I would, I wanted to know. I couldn't. I couldn't. I tried digging as far as I could, and I couldn't find it. Um, what the original context was. But like, um, kind of where I was going with that is that the fact that you have a third term existing alongside male and female um, implies that there. This is more than just like a one-off um, thing. Or anyway, um, I'm kind of babbling right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Um, I had um, to run, I wanted to run and get an article that I had read, um, uh, that had more on this. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so these, these pottery, these pottery shards, so the actual, um, hieroglyphic depiction of them is really interesting. Um, so you have the, the, so for, for Thai, right? So the word for, like, male, hieroglyphically depicts a, a picture of, like, a penis and a picture of a man kneeling. And then... You have, for um, Schet, you have a picture of a man kneeling, but not a picture of a penis. And then the word for female, which was, um, uh, oh god, I just lost humped. it too. Yeah, humped. The, 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 uh, yeah, the word for female includes a picture of a woman kneeling, but no picture of body parts. Unless mm. there's, there's like, there's like a, a shield-like shape, which could, you know, designate, like, woman and, like, you know, the you know, mons pubis, and, you know, we've, we talked before in... Shield you know, banging. It, exactly, shield banging, which is, so it, which is, would correlate because that specifically comes from, like, Arabic poetry in Middle Ages. So mm -hmm. there's correlation there. So, yeah, so... So there is, there is, interestingly, one other word that can be translated as eunuch um, in Egyptian, and that is the word hum, which is related to the word for female, which is hamat, only it lacks the marked, the grammatically marked feminine ending, which is that T sound. Mm -hmm. And so the other interesting thing is that there seems to be a lot of overlap between this word hum used to mean eunuch 
Ham meaning a kind of priest who performed sacrifices to the dead, which intrigues me because you have, you know, Nephthys is like a associated with the dead and she as a deity kind of exists outside of these, you know, traditional reproductive roles. Um, and then you have a word for eunuch, which is, you know, related to the word for female, um, but lacking the feminine ending. And, you know, the same word is used as priest to the dead. So it like, there's like, I can't prove anything, but there's all these interesting little like connections between them. Mm -hmm. Oh, and what I was going to say earlier, I mean, the reason why we want to specifically call out that there's no castration involved really is because as modern societies, we tend to perceive being a eunuch as involuntary mm -hmm. as like people don't choose to be a eunuch you're made a eunuch either because you are enslaved or because like the king um you know because you're serving in the royal harem and the king doesn't want you to fuck his wives and so he forcibly castrates you but in egyptian society like being a eunuch did not involve mutilation of any kind like these are individuals who had intact genitalia fully functioning intact genitalia as far as we know and likely do and yet exist outside of the gender binary so they're not like forcibly castrated like in some sense one could understand why you know someone who was you know like born with the with a phallus and testicles who had them forcibly removed could be considered no longer a man anymore like as bullshit as that idea is, like one can follow that logic. And so I think a lot of times as modern people looking back, we tend to assume that situation, that scenario, that a eunuch has to be someone who is made to be one and can't and doesn't fit, you know, biologically male because they no longer have, you know, male anatomy. Therefore, they must be something else. Um, but in Egypt, it isn't like that. So in Egypt has this sense of like, you can be, you know, a sahit without, with having fully functioning genitalia, no matter, like whatever that, you know, anatomy is, it's not about having the right anatomy. It's about existing outside of, you know, reproductive norms for male and female. Um, and to, like to, like, I think to us, it's important to like distinguish that category of like, this seems to be something that is voluntary and like chosen rather and based, than and like, based on behavior and who right. you're associating yourself with right because we have that hmm as being two two different things you have it as right. that useful for you know considering like a, a separate gen gender sort of marker and also being part of this this priest association right and also you know we'll get into it when we talk about our 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 friends that we're about to get to in this next section but there is even talk about the you know the concept of the the hmm, priesthood being an association of exclusive homosexuals of right. all of these hmm, priests playing the spiritual role that you know that like homosexual uh, homosexuals in many cultural cultures play um right which you'll see pop up in other cultures too like you know, men loving men, women loving women, anyone who like moves outside of this expected gender role and and sociological behavior in some of, you know, we've we've talked about like in Christianity and a lot of Western sensibilities, these are things that are looked down upon. But in many societies, this was an elevated role of, mm -hmm. oh, you must have some connection to spirituality that mm -hmm. those of us who are are in this binary don't um and so you know we see this with with these priests we see this in a lot of native american cultures we see it with uh you know isras in india 
it's 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 a separate and somewhat revered um depiction of of these behaviors and this sociological role right well and intriguingly there are i mean there's evidence that early christians had that kind of understanding because you have someone like paul who you know when he's talking about marriage says i wish everyone could be like i am Mm -hmm. and he seems to be someone who did not have a family that like he values you know being single if we want to put it that way in modern terms because he perceived it as giving him an elevated you know spirituality because he can you know focus on more spiritual things rather than focusing on like reproduction and family I mean and that that's a tangent but like that idea of like existing outside of like the reproductive binary like can give someone like an elevated spiritual status within society yeah and that does bring us to our priests our priests oh man yay all right priests yes our home priests the the gay egyptians our gay egyptians yeah nyanch num and num hotep num hotep yes let's call them nyan and hum Ugh, god i can't do this i'm sorry you can call call yeah nyan and hnum because i don't want to say yeah it's a lot so yeah (laughs) clear my sinuses though there you go uh yeah so these lovely this lovely duo uh, they were discovered in 1964 at Saqqara near Memphis, and the first modern European white, white. explorers uh, were dumbfounded to explain this picture of the two men embracing at the tomb's entrance. Right? Why? Why would dudes be buried together? Why would Why would dudes Why would two dudes be buried together? I'm so confused. <laughs> so these these uh, these two were manicurists of King Nisere of the fifth dynasty, old kingdom. Um, from 2380 to 2320 BCE, which was uh, being a manicurist was an honored position in the palace as the king was the the avatar of the sun god. Right. So like taking care of the king, like being involved in like the, the beauty regimen or like taking care of like the king's body was like a very, very elevated. That was a very prestigious position um, mm-hmm. to be in. So um, they had their names stylistically intertwined above the entrance to the inner chamber um, as Nyanch Khnum Hotep which translates to joined in life and joined in death or joined in peace, which is just, oh. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like a specifically like a combination of their two names. Right. Which is really neat. And it's, right. it, was, it was rare at the time uh, for two men of equal standing to share a tomb. This was usually, you know, like tombs were usually reserved for one like high-ranking male and his wife and his kids, sometimes servants, sometimes pets, and, and, these are supposed to be like houses for the afterlife. So whatever's depicted on the walls was meant to be like a magical representation of that person's life in the afterlife. Hence, like leaving funerary goods and, you know, pets and, and things that, that, that were beloved by the buried in their lifetime. They want it to be on their journey. Whatever, <laughs> whatever happens in a tomb echoes for eternity. Did you uh, like that? I did like that. Yeah, whatever, <laughs> whatever goes in the tombs. <laughs> yeah, whatever. You get it forever. Ever. Oh God, can you imagine if somebody just put something like like your annoying third cousin? You're like, oh God, I gotta listen to Susan forever. Right. Like, what if you woke up in the afterlife and you're like, the gate? Like, I didn't. Like, all my kids are in here. I didn't like all of them. <laughs> oh, God. Jerry? Shit. I hate God, Jerry. All of them? I hate Jerry. <laughs> He's an asshole. This is the, uh, 
the uh, the ancient Egyptian uh, edition of Parks and Recreation. Oh God. my gosh, <laughs> Jerry. <Damn>. Um. <laughs> so let's let's okay. So with that in mind, that that like what what is in this tomb is what their afterlife supposed to be. Let's talk a little bit about what we see on the walls of the tomb. What do they have in this tomb? In the like outer chamber of the tomb. We have the two men seated together, arm in arm, uh, greeting the offering bearers and visitors to their burial place. We also have scenes of them walking hand in hand, touring and inspecting their tomb. As part of a procession, which is clearly meant to be like a family procession, because you have these pairs of other like parents, siblings, um, husband, wife, and then you have these two, Jan and Khnum, standing next to each other, arm in arm, in this family procession. There's an inner banquet scene, where they are depicted enjoying dancers and musicians. There are three scenes of the two men embracing, where one rests his arm around the other's shoulder, while the second one grasps the first man's arm, and they stand so close that their noses are like kissing, their nose kissing, um, which was the favorite form of kissing in Egypt, and their thighs are touching. Like, they're like, they're close guys. Like, there's like no room, no room for the Holy Spirit. They're, They're like right up next to each other. So um, in these depictions, Nian is given what we would call the male position, and Khnum is given the female position in the iconography. So what that means is, is that these two men are depicted in ways similar to male and female husband-wife pairs in other tombs in funerary paintings. Things like Khnum holding a lotus flower, which was symbolic of the female role, and offering it to Nian, which was something that wives did their husbands in these funerary paintings. Khnum is also depicted as being shorter and smaller and having a lighter skin tone, which is another visual representation which is reserved for wise. Interestingly, it has parallels with the ones that we saw in the homosexual tradition in ancient China, mm-hmm. where the lighter skinned is the passive partner. Was that mm-hmm. isn't that what it was there? Yeah. Uh yes. no, dar- uh, darker oh. skinned. Darker skinned. So I it's the it opposite. Was... Yeah. Uh I can't remember, honestly. Go, go back to our last episode. I yeah. have the memory Couple of a fruit episodes, fly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think the paler skinned was the, was the passive partner because women would have been depicted as having paler skin. Yes, yeah. And so the same applies in Egypt. The, the female position would have been shorter, smaller, typically set slightly behind the male and having a paler skin tone. And that's how we have Khnum is depicted in that position, whereas Neon is, you know, taller and forefronted and having, you know, the, the darker skin tone. We don't have a lot of female figures in the tomb in general, um, and most of the ones we have we know are sisters, wives, and daughters of, like, the other male figures in the tomb. That's right, wives. So each of these men had a wife. In the banquet scene, actually, uh, Neon's wife was chiseled out. We clearly see the outline of where she was meant to be drawn right next to him, but like she was chiseled out. So, mm-hmm. And Khnum actually is sitting alone at another table, and there's no room for a wife. But we know from like other depictions outside of the tomb that like he had a wife, but she's not at the banquet. And yeah. Neon's wife was erased from the banquet. Yeah. There's a there's another section of another wall where there's like a like a procession of the very few females, um, but the figures are like all like allegorically connected and depicting like like different crops. So it I, yeah it's um like not seventy six of the ninety seven figures in this tomb are male. Yeah yeah and other and, than and the two yeah other than the two like other than Neon and Khnum. The other named figures are male. Like, not even, like, the wives and sisters have names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, only, Which, it was, like, only 21 of the 
almost a hundred people that are depicted on this wall are family are actually like family members, male male or female or other. So right. you have this like this is it's just all those, it's all these like priests. It's this all is just a, this is just a giant room of you and your gay buddies hanging right? out right for all eternity. Right. My favorite part though was like this like so there's these two like yes dog like animals. <laughs> Who are having sex. We read the same article. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the only sex that is depicted in the tomb. Mm-hmm. And it's in this, like, hunting scene, like, off to the side. And it could be a reference to the kind of sex the men enjoyed because, I mean, that's the kind of thing that ancient Egyptian art, like, art can do. They could be hyenas who, in Egyptian art, are associated with gender ambiguity. They could be jackals who are associated with Set, who we know is associated with things like their gender and homosexuality like no matter what animal you think these are it's kind of gay like yeah well and and i i read another article about like ancient egyptian sexuality and like depiction of sex in art so like you know we talked about like gender and sexuality being very very integral in egyptian mythology and you know the like being you know birthing out of masturbation birthing out of you know these these sexual acts and the need to have like sex in order to be reborn after death but i i read like that there is actually a pretty rare occurrence of showing humans in sexually explicit positions in egyptian art and there's there's even there's like even a famous example of graffiti of a pharaoh and a man commonly thought to be, uh, like, it's it's commonly thought that the two figures in this are, um, uh, Hatshep, uh, I cannot pronounce her name. Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut. I'm just gonna let you talk. Um, and, um, Senenmut, uh, which would have been highly taboo to draw the queen in this manner, but usually what you'll find is you'll find, like, depictions of sex acts between animals is i don't know i just thought that was really interesting is like you're not usually gonna find people people depicted enjoying each other sexually in egyptian art um you're but gonna you have will animals who you will have animals yeah representations of the people they just mm-hmm. don't want to show the people doing it they'll show the animals doing it. um but of course with all of this what what do the scholars say who who are these people they're brothers just just bros they're twins my favorite though is that is that someone argues that they're conjoined twins. Oh yeah, that's why they're so close. Right, that's why they stand next to each other in one scene, even though in all the other scenes, you know, they got a couple of scenes where they're standing like right next to each other, but in their other scenes, they're like far apart from each other. But clearly, they're like conjoined twins because you know <laughs> that's the most logical explanation for guys who are united in life and united in death. Oh yeah, that's that's is the, that they're conjoined that is twins. the only way. Right. That you right. could be, uh, oh. yep. Hashtag no homo, guys. <laughs> oh, but man. Really, that's, Wait a that's basically so what is, it boils down this to. Is is liter- like, this is no homo. <laughs> this is literally our uh, bros, just bros being mouse. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, bros you can call them bros, but we know what this is really about. Right. Sure. They're, yeah, brothers. They're yeah. the closest brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a really good comic that we've we've reblogged on yes. our Tumblr, but we'll post it up. We'll post up a link to it on our website. But yeah, um, so you know this this when this tomb was discovered, that was like the prevailing theory because because homophobia. homophobia. But this like this gay couple hypothesis is actually gaining traction in 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 archaeological 
circles and historical circles. And it's relying especially upon, like, analogy with other funerary paintings with male and female couples, which all have a romantic, even sexual component to the exact same scenes. Yep, yep. So, Reader, um, one, of, one of the sources, it's from a New York Times article, says, quote, They are so close together here that not only are they face-to-face and nose-to-nose, but so close that the knots on their belts are touching linking their lower torsos. If this scene were composed of a male-female couple instead of the same sex couple we have here, there would be little question concerning what it is that we are seeing, unquote. Mm-hmm. Hey, so, like, gender roles in funerary paintings, like, the argument here is that gender roles in funerary paintings are remarkably consistently depicted. I mean, th- like, this was a specific way that they would depict, like, they are, husband they are, and wives. These two people are in... The exact same position that is specifically designated for those in a marital, loving relationship. So why would these two dudes be depicted in that position? I don't know. There's zero explanation other than they must be family. Conjoined twins. Conjoined twins. It's like, I'm an academic. (laughs) <laughs> I have I have heard some really crazy theories for lots of crazy things. But to look at a painting like this and be like, they must be conjoined twins <laughs> is honestly one of the most like batshit things I have ever heard. Like no no offense to I'm sure the very like intelligent people who came up with this theory, but really guys, like the hetero really? goggles are really strong, okay? I mean There are people, look, there are people who look at, you know, so many, I mean, we just, all you have to do is like, look, well, oh God, we might piss some people off with this, but I don't care. Like, yeah, like we could just look, look, just look at Korosami and the fact that a bunch of people didn't see that there. Like, I'm sorry, friend, but please take off your hetero goggles because they are blinding you to the realities of many a thing that you could be seeing. It's just two ladies going on a totally platonic, like solo vacation together and two dudes being buried next to each other kissing each other for all of eternity because they just you know they must have been physically attached to each other i guess right the only explanation is that they had to literally be physically attached to each other (laughs) Uh, these are some strong heterogoggles guys some, Um, some strong shit yep uh another quote from the new york times article that we will link in our show notes um, from a, someone named O'Connor. The semi-public nature of their tomb chapel suggests that their gay relationship was accepted as normative by the elite of a particularly famous and illustri- illustrious civilization. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's true. Like, not to overstate. I think it is fair to say this is a, this is a fairly public tomb. The fact that this was allowed to be, like, created in this way and no one, like... The only thing chiseled out was the wife, guys. <laughs> And, like, this is from a society that, like, regularly chisels out, like, would chisel out, like, female rulers if, like, their child or successor wasn't happy with the things they did. Mm -hmm. Like, that was how you erased someone from the afterlife, is, like, you literally would, like, chisel them out. So, like, these guys weren't chiseled out. Mm -hmm. The wife was, which, again, telling. (laughs) Like, she doesn't belong here. Um, (laughs) Like, oh, she's cramping our style. Just just getting up on our vibe. Right. So, but this does seem to support the idea proposed by Malik earlier that Ham and perhaps even Sahit referred to homo- like homosexual persons, like though maybe not always sexually non-reproductive because like clearly these men had wives 
in families at some level. Or it could be that someone could inhabit both roles depending on the phase of life and the visibility of one's relationship um, that did not produce children. Like we saw in ancient China, like someone could inhabit multiple roles throughout their lifetime. That it could be that, you know, the idea of third gender wasn't like a fixed identity that one could inhabit. You know, one could be third gender if one were in a more exclusive, you know, homosexual relationship and didn't have children in that relationship, one could be classified as third gender, even if one had, you know, previously had a relationship with, you know, someone of, you know, quote unquote, opposite gender and had children. So again, like to me, like, this is just more evidence that like gender has more to, to do with like sociological role than it has <laughs> to do with anatomy. Like, yeah. Gender is a social construct. You heard it. You heard it here, folks. You gender. Gender has nothing to do with your biology. Woo! Woo! We should make, like, a jingle. That'd be Oh, yeah. That'd be fun. Hey, Um, friends who listen to us, somebody who is musically inclined, come email us for jingles. Help us with jingles. We're not fancy. No. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So, takeaways. Uh, Wrapping this up now that we've gone on for, like, an hour and a half now. (laughs) Whoops! Uh, So, yeah. Takeaways on, like, gender as sociological role in Egypt and involved in reproduction. So, I mean, the Egyptian concept of gender seems to be related to procreation and one's role in reproduction. You can talk about, you know, the impregnator and the impregnated. And one would be tempted to collapse ancient Egyptian views of gender into more of a biological one. However, as we've been arguing, like, this is anachronistic. They didn't seem to have a concept of biology the way that we do. Someone who would traditionally be the impregnator, could take on the role of being impregnated, someone like Set. And while we don't have examples of the reverse, again, one could argue that this is still a conceptual possibility that perhaps wasn't fully realized due to, you know, patriarchal assumptions. Or they're, di- or they're just not recorded. This wasn't recorded. Like, we have so much stuff from Egypt, and like, but that doesn't mean we have everything. And, yeah, what has you know, been lost? God. I mean, and, and as is true for most of history, the stories that we have reflect a very, you know, phallocentric, mm-hmm. you know, story. And so, you know, it could be that there were, you know, third gendered, you know, people who would have been, you know, might have been perceived as female, but we don't have their stories recorded because they weren't the ones telling history and recording their own stories. So, but it doesn't mean it's not possible. It just means we, you know, we may not have those stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, like the existence, the exi- and I mean, third gender. So that's what this was all about, was about third gender. So the existence of this third gender outside of reproductive role, like really does caution against conflating gender with anatomy in ancient Egyptian society. And it seems highly possible that they viewed people who did not reproduce as inhabiting a different sociological role and thus belonging to a different gender because gender was about one's sociological and reproductive role so if you weren't if you didn't fall into like the impregnator or impregnated role then you were something else you were a third gender because you had a different role in society and so people were not outside of what was you know right expected right which means that you know people were not reduced to their reproductive function completely like the fact that they could exist outside of it means that that wasn't the entirety of how they were perceived, I guess, is the point. Like, in a society that makes space for existing outside of it, you can't reduce someone's, you know, gender to their reproductive function because that's something they could opt out of. It's a part of it, but not 
the entire sum of it. Right. Well, and it's so interesting, too, that they're so weirdly related, right? That it, it doesn't fit neatly into, like, biological essentialist norms. It doesn't mm -mm. say that, hey, this is what you have to do because this is the junk you have. But it does still strongly correlate reproductive capacity with gender because it's it's a role. Right. And so there's, you know, there's evidence that gender presentation could exist beyond cis and reproductive conceptualization, right? Like, we have our dancing woman mummy, and we have the transformative gender in burial, and we have our, our you know, women pharaohs who have mm -hmm. their beards and their loincloths. Could, you know, Adam, the, the archetypal god, represent this, like, third gender? Someone who's neither or both sociologically male or sociologically female? Could Hoppy? You know, we have, right? there's so much complexity. And mm -hmm. I think that's like the main takeaway is like, hey, y'all, things haven't been one and two everywhere. Right. Always. Right. Right. Which, Rosemary which gives Joyce, me comfort. Yeah, it does. It's so comforting to like look at the past and see that the past is just as complicated as I think the present is, mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of people will talk about like, oh, it's, you know, why do we, why are you making gender so complicated? It's just male and female. Make it easy, folks. It's just like, gender's it's, never it's been never simple. It's never been easy. Never gender been has simple. always been c complicated and multifaceted and it's never been entirely reduced to an either or even in societies that one could look at and say, for the most part, it's a binary. But even within that, there's, you know, fluidity, there's ambiguity, there's flexibility, there's, you know, the ability to exist outside of the binary, whatever that looks like. Have things uh, shift and change depending on where you are in your life, in your life cycle. Right, right, right in the afterlife. Like, mm -hmm. it's so much more complicated. Rosemary Joyce, uh, one of my sources, summarizes dealing with ancient cultures and their conceptualizations of sex and gender, primarily via archaeological remains, very nicely. She has this to say. Even biological sex is not a simple binary. Depending on what we use as criteria, we can define multiple chromosomal sexes or place people on a continuum with respect to other indicators of sex. So the question becomes, what groupings and distinctions were important at this place and time? So what she's trying to say is, like, even biological sex is is not a binary it's a continuum it's a spectrum it's it's much more complicated so what matters when we're looking at ancient cultures is how did they choose to define and think of it like and we can't assume biology because even biology is complicated and so it's not fair to project like modern conflations of like biology and gender onto ancient cultures like one it's not fair because not even what biology is anyway <laughs> biology is not a binary anyway so like throw that out the window but also you have to look at what the culture finds important and that's what we were trying to do with Egypt is like well what do they find important like what interests them what are the categories that they're operating on and within and then how can you exist outside of that and where is their fluidity and flexibility and what features did they find important to distinguish people from each other and not assuming our own modern categories mm-hmm um, so it's kind of so, our yeah. takeaway. So yeah, so Gretchen, uh, how gay were they? Ooh, um, for, for all of ancient Egypt. <laughs> Let's uh, I guess we'll we'll break it we'll break it down, right? Yeah. So do you wanna do you wanna start off with like Horus and Set? Sure. Um, I put Horus. He seemed kind of into it. Like he didn't he didn't mind. Yeah. Um, you know, he was he was kind of like, look, mom, I have do, like, I have I have set semen. What do I do with this? What do I do with it? Um, and even in the older version of the tale, he, like, when Set's like, hey, let's have sex, he's like, 
with pleasure. pleasure. With, with pleasure. pleasure. I'd put him at like a. I'd put Horace at like a seven. Yeah. Um. Maybe Set. I mean, Set was I'd, pretty preoccupied with with getting other... with with getting Horace. Yep. You know really whether whether Horace's whether it was ass. a power whether it was a power thing or not. You know he seemed to be pretty pretty pretty. Yeah. Uh, I'd put him in it. I'd put him at a nine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also just like that, like, jackals and hyenas are, like, you know, as- a- associated with set as, like, ma, hello, gender confusion. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, yep. my f- that's my fursona. Is your- <laughs> set is my fursona. Set. He's the yeah. jackal. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> um, what about uh, Nephthys and Isis? Do you, think they- do you think they had a thing? I mean, if they were hanging out that much together and ignoring everybody else. I mean, and just the, like the idea of, I don't know, I just, I, I really want to go more into, I mean, there there was a lot of like ambiguity about it, but Nephthys and like this amb- ambiguous spouse relationship that she has and that she, you know, is like, I mean, it's, if you're going to compare anybody to Artemis, you're gonna you're gonna get into kind of a gay area. Yeah. <laughs> ha, ha, oh, that's ha, like ha. a gray area. <laughs> that's great. I love it. I'd say I yeah. Nephthys is pretty gay. Pretty gay. I I'd, think I'd, so. I'd I'd say like a you know I mean unfortunately we just don't get a lot of her. But no. I'm gonna you know I'm gonna say like a six or a seven at least. Right. Isis. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how she. I think that she might have been okay with it. She's yeah. probably bi. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then our and then our and then our boys. Oh my our, gosh. our folks. Uh Jan and Chnum. And Chnum. I mean uh, that's a like, I just really don't gay. understand. I just don't, I don't either. understand how Egyptologists went, hmm. Like this there's this is a ten out of ten for me. Because I mean Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I was even like reading, you know, this like in this banquet scene, right? You have like everybody is like putting their like they have their like left hand over their hearts except for like the first woman who was probably the mother and it's so, all like like all of all of the people have their left hands over their hearts except for that first woman and then Hnum Hotep right and mm-hmm. those two like the the first woman and Hnum Hotep are affectionately touching the men in front of them mm-hmm. and and Hnum Hotep is holding Nyan Nyan Hnum's right hand in his left like they're hold, they're literally holding hands in their grave, you guys. And the yep. e- Egyptologists are like, like this this article right says clearly the, the Egyptologists, due to their heterosexism, have been unable to see that Numhotep is clearly represented as a spouse in this family scene, not yeah. as one of the siblings. Like this is yep. this is a uh, I think this was was this reader this was I think this was reader. But yeah, like. Everything depicts them in this in these patterns that we have seen in spouses, and so to to look at that and just blindly go, ah, no, I can't. It, it's like that Mariah Carey gif of like, oh, you know, suddenly I can't read. Oh, uh, oh my gosh, know. right, right, it's, yeah. Like that's, that's like what I imagine these Egyptologists did. They looked at the homo and went, uh, no, that can't I don't, be it. No, no, they're just brothers who really loved each other. A lot. Yes. I just wanted out. Like, I kind of wanted. That makes me kind of wonder. Like, what is your understanding of brotherhood then? Ooh, yeah. Like, if this is what you think brothers do, maybe you should um, revisit I don't the know. definition. I don't know. Right? Yeah. Maybe. So yeah. Other words. I think I like. I. I mean, I call them the gay Egyptians for a reason because like I can't. <laughs> I can't think of them as being anything other than gay. Yeah. 
these two dudes loved each other and wanted to live the rest of they wanted to live their afterlife together guys oh like you must really fucking love somebody if you're willing to spend eternity that right. close and like so. chisel out your wife yeah like you know that person that i married and have kids with nah nah fuck them i don't want her here it's fine i want to be with this dude forever you gotta All right. really love someone. <laughs> right. I mean, and I guess the last thing we could talk about is like, what do we think about the third gender? Like, do we think that it was just another name for like, um, you know, being like a woman loving woman or a man loving man? Or does there just happen to be a lot of crossover? Like, what are your thoughts on that? I, I was really surprised to find that. I was really surprised to see, you know, that it's it seemed to be so exclusively based on behavior. And you know, in like modern sensibilities, we do a lot of work trying to tr- trying to divorce those two concepts, right? Trying to divorce right. the concept of gender and your sexual or romantic behavior. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, you know, because like now it's used so negatively against us. It's used, right. you know, as as a as a way to demonize and a way to to discredit people's gender experiences. But it, it's, it was interesting to see the, con- the conflation between them. Um, mm-hmm. and, all, and just it, it, so interesting to see, hey, gender is complex. Right. And it does. You know, even though it is a separate thing, it does have a huge, a, a, a huge impact on how you experience attraction. I mean, like, the idea is, you know, like, the joke of, like, if you're, you know, if, if you're non-binary, then everyone that you are with is then queer because like mm-hmm. if you're non-binary and you're experiencing you know life as multiple genders or something in between like it it doesn't matter who you're dating they gay now like <laughs> you know like it's like when when you get right? into when you get into an expansive understanding of gender <laughs> like sexual orientation and labels don't really exist anymore like we use these things because they're useful to us but like if you if you understand that like gender is kind of bullshit then all of that kind of also goes away um so i thought that's kind of what i was thinking in this like we have this understanding of it as this behavior of like men loving men and and this association of hmm, priests but also it was like a the fact that it was linguistically um designated as a as a third thing i think was really cool right and interesting yeah yeah i totally agree yeah so uh that's it for today's episode you can find us online individually um as i said at the beginning i am gretchen and when i am not talking about uh gender and uh queerness in ancient egypt and other historical cultures and places and times and people i am writing nerdy media analysis and fangirling over star wars and uh steven universe and winona erp for the fundamentals.com and my personal website gnellis.com or you can check me out on tumblr and twitter as at gnellis writer all one word what about you lee so when i'm not nerding out about you know moe's totally not being bros in ancient egyptian tombs i'm usually talking about comics queer tv lately uh squealing about really awesome movies like black panther uh i'm gonna go see wrinkle in time later today i'm really excited uh but you can usually find all of those ramblings over at a paradox in flux on twitter and probably watching something gay at home over skype with my gay friends um yeah History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter at 
at History is Gay Pod. You can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay Podcast at gmail.com. We've gotten more really lovely fan emails. We love hearing from you guys. Yay. Great. Um, yeah, if you're enjoying the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Reviewing especially helps more people find the show, and it'll, you know, get us a bigger community. More fan art will probably happen, and, you know, we we can make some cool things happen. Um, and like we said in our last episode, uh, we're working on figuring out how to get merch available yes. to y'all so hold tight some of you have told us that you're very excited for it i'm very excited for it I'm and uh too. so with that that's it for history is gay until next time stay queer and stay curious